Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we look at big tech with Meredith Whitaker, who worked at Google for a decade and is now at NYU, where she focuses on the social implications of artificial intelligence and the tech industry responsible for it. Her recent article in The Nation, co-authored with Nantina Vagonsis, puts forward a militant progressive vision for tech and says the left must buy for control over the algorithms, data and infrastructure that shape our lives. This is all the more urgent in light of the January January 6th assault on the Capitol, and we'll get Meredith's explanation of the way platform business models like Facebook and YouTube drive right-wing conspiracy theories and right-wing organizing. She also looks at the way big tech exploits its workers, something we explored recently with Vina Duval looking at the implications of the passage of Prop 22. We're fortunate to have Meredith help us understand the challenges as well as suggest the way to wrest control from big tech. We then turn to Russia, speaking to historian, political activist, and writer Ilya Budzhaitskis in Moscow about the massive anti-government protests that have rocked cities and towns across the entire country following the arrest, detention, and now imprisonment of prominent opposition figure Alexei Navalny, who returned to Russia on January 17th after narrowly surviving being poisoned from exposure to military-grade Novichok on August 20th. Ilya Budraitskis stands with the protesters, and we're going to get his views of the movement itself, as well as his analysis of the Putin regime, and a closer look at what Navalny represents. We'll also ask for your support for this radio station when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Meredith Whitaker joins us today to help us understand and analyze big tech and the technologies they employ that not only shape our lives, but function as a method of social control. Meredith is now research professor at NYU and directs their Artificial Intelligence Now Institute. But she spent a decade at Google where she led product and engineering teams, founded their Open Research Group and co-founded MLab, which is a globally distributed network measurement platform that now provides the world's largest source of open data on internet performance. I hope we learn what that really means. And she also, though, while at Google, helped lead organizing efforts there and developed her theory of change that we're going to explore. Her recent article at The Nation that is co-authored with Nantina Gonsis is called These Machines Won't Kill Fascism Toward a Militant progressive vision for tech, and it puts forward this vision and says that the left must vie for control over the algorithms, data, and infrastructure that shape our lives. This is all the more urgent in light of the January 6th assault on the Capitol, and we're going to get Meredith's explanation of the way platform business models like Facebook and YouTube drive right-wing conspiracy theories and right-wing organizing. And Meredith also looks at the way big tech exploits its workers, something that we explored recently with Vina Dubal looking at the implications of the passage of Prop 22. So first, welcome, Meredith. I'm really pleased to have you here. Thank you so much, Susie. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's lovely to hear Vina Dubal's name. She's a 
brilliant scholar. And yeah, that. she's amazing. But so, okay, let's go to your Nation article that you wrote with Nantina. And first, I'd probably like to hear about how you came to write that. But in that, you offer some pretty startling historical insights on the rise of technology in response to the general crisis of profitability and competitiveness in the 70s and 80s in manufacturing. And you discuss this in both economic terms and also politics. So I want to ask you about those. Let's just hear about first how you came to write it, and then I'll get you to unpack some of my first question. Great. Well, I'm lucky enough to work with Dr. Natina Bagansos, who's a comparative political economist and labor ethnographer, and they study the politics of global supply chains. So we happened to have very complementary backgrounds that fed into this article. So as you mentioned, I was a longtime tech worker. I you know, was part of a crew of folks at Google and in the industry beyond who did a lot of labor organizing in the sector over the last five years and was sort of animated by demands for control and demands for social justice that both centered in the workplace, but actually extended well beyond. So you know, workers demanding a say in what they build, workers refusing to build technology and workers sort of allying with, you know, larger social causes like environmental justice or anti-imperialism, et cetera. For their part, Nantina studied the ways that the rise of the Greek far right and how it was building its base Mm -hmm. in the ports, right? So there's already a connection with logistics workers and these choke points, as we might call them. And they're also a labor scholar. They've done fieldwork and activism, particularly around Amazon And they pay great attention to the shop floor politics and the relationship between labor and social control. So I think we were sort of on different ends of these systems of control and developed this analysis together, looking at the growing movement across different roles in the industry, from logistics workers at Amazon to elite white collar workers in the engineering departments and well beyond, and thinking about what could this base mean as a sort of anti-fascist front. Right. You know, and I hope that we're going to be able to marry these two different aspects together in this interview, because it's really important first, like to understand what the technology is and what it's doing, and then how the other side of it, the actual tech workers and all of the rest of it. So let's just start here with the economy and production. You say in your article, as the global economic crisis took hold in the 70s, employers invested in systems of technical management and automation in order to recover profitability, further entrenching mechanisms of control over workers and immiseration. This did not return the U.S. to manufacturing leadership, but instead elevated the tech sector as a sector in its own right. And so I guess maybe we should first get an explanation of of what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what's wonderful about having a brilliant co-author, because in this part, we were drawing heavily on Nantina's work and on the work of Eric Van Deventer, who studies the Democrat strategy around industry and finance in the 80s. So we had really good you know, I had great thought partners there. So what we're referring to here is that essentially during these sort of 70s and 80s, this period of stagnation, Democrats were looking for a way to ensure manufacturing industries remained competitive, right? This, the interest of capital. And this was against the backdrop of competition with Japan, you know, again, economic recession and stagnation. And manufacturers in the financial sector, of course, also had an interest in this. And they were pushing to invest in tech and automation seeing these as tools that could help flagging industries remain competitive and sort of bolster American manufacturing in a globalized market. 
So of course, these tools also reduce costs. They increase control over workers. They centralize surveillance and assessment of manufacturing performance you know, and efficiency further and further away from the shop floor. So those dynamics of sort of taking control out of the hands of workers were part of this. And as Nantina points out during this time, what's particularly interesting about tech to the Democrats and to these actors is tech as infrastructure, right? The ways in which these systems can make industry more competitive. And it was these investments in tech as sort of tools of capital and competition that combined a bit later with the affordances offered by the commercialized internet, networked computation, which we won't get into right now, but these sort of coalesced effectively to make the tech sector an important political actor of its own, which is now, you know, now we're seeing this sort of repeating with that sector, kind of emboldening all sorts of other actors. And there's there's a lot more history here around sort of how that move was also built on the backs of increasingly weakening unions and organized labor. Mm. So, you know, putting that in the context of, you know, the state of organized labor in the 70s and 80s, that following like World War II and the no strike pledges and particularly the Red Scare that just evicted, you know, militant labor organizers out of the labor movement we see unions had narrowed their scope. So they're fighting for contracts, they're fighting for bread and butter issues, but you know the capacious political demands of the labor movement of the 20s and 30s are nowhere to be seen, right? These demands for control over the shop floor, control over these infrastructures of control to have workers actually able to make these decisions, those are no longer on the table. So this influx of automation and tech was sort of hitting workers at the same time that they had sort of lost their power to push back. And this is something I would suggest reading James Boggs in particular, who's mm-hmm. a scholar and auto worker during this period, for really detailed accounts of what this meant. Well, okay, so let's just go into that a little bit, because this, I don't know, this may be surprising about the way that the Democrats are so closely associated with tech. And you wrote, of course, in the article, it was the so-called Atari Democrats, who deeming tech a source of growth during the stagnant 80s, grew the industry through tax breaks, regulatory loopholes, and privatization of the formerly public internet. And then you said this ascent was part of an implicit bargain. Democrats relied on big tech for campaign contributions and the partisanship of its elite workforce. In exchange, they gave companies control over the infrastructure on which our institutions had relied. So really, I want you to explain for our listeners, first of all, you know, a little bit more about the Democratic parties, uh, how they got favored in this, but especially for people who don't understand, and I think it needs to be understood, is what you mean by infrastructure here. So, so let me focus on that second question, because I think it's, there's kind of a winding road here. And I think we're talking about infrastructures, really, kind of a variegated set of systems that are being threaded through all sorts of social domains. So I think it's no controversy at this point. It's fairly widely accepted that, you know, our core social institutions, our you know, economic institutions, et cetera, are increasingly dependent on big tech. And this is something that has particularly accelerated over the last decade. So from education, right, we're using Zoom here. I use Zoom every day at the university I work at to media, right? We're talking about these platforms as media companies to transportation. We have both Uber and Lyft and then this growing sort of push to develop so-called autonomous vehicles to hiring and means testing and a whole host of decision-making systems Mm -hmm. and computational infrastructures that are directing government and non-governmental institutions, right? So it's 
at this point, it's hard to find a sector that has not been impacted, whereas we could spend all day listing every single sector and domain that has. So I think we can sort of, I don't know, in in a a bit of a potted history, trace this to the commercialization or, or this phase of what we're seeing, right? And of course, we can trace it farther back, as we just did, to the commercialization of the formerly public internet in the 90s which mm-hmm. paved the path for this kind of data-hungry big tech business model that we are you know, experiencing the collateral damages of right now. And it was the mm-hmm. case, you know, companies like Google and Facebook, et cetera, were the winners here, right? And their business model was effectively advertising. That's what they did. But they had a number of different shims in front of that. You know, they offer access to products, platform services, you know, social media, Gmail, whatever, These would collect a ton of data about us or purportedly about us. And it would use this data to make profiles that they would then sell access to these types of people to advertisers with the claim that, you know, this was a more effective way to reach niche consumers or or your market. And it's still up in the air whether this works. It certainly works to make money, right? Whether it works to actually target people with things they want. And I would suggest the work of Tim Huang, who is a scholar who's convincingly called into question whether these things work as advertised, ironically, but irrespective of whether they work, right? Like the claim that they work drove people to use them and drove huge profits. And this was a gold mine. So it effectively, what this gold mine meant is that these companies were building out giant computational infrastructures. So like data centers with the carbon footprint of cities, they were building out pipelines and infrastructures for capturing and analyzing and storing this like ever running river of intensely personal and impersonal data about literally billions of people, right? They had all of these things set up because these were (laughs) the dependencies of their business model. And then around 2012, and I like, this is an important date, but I'm not going to go into why specifically, we saw the industry seemingly suddenly turn to artificial intelligence, right? There was this sort of boom, and, you know, their bold claims splashed across Wired and every, you know, every conference. AI would transcend human intelligence. It would solve death. It would call itself cancer, climate change. Mm-hmm. It, said it, was, it was like this one magical fix to everything. You had a domain, put some AI in it, and it will be better, right? And the question then raised by, like, very self-sure male thought leaders in this space <laughs> was, like, would it become too smart and outsmart us, right? That, like fear-mongering around the superintelligence, right? Which is a great, you know, mythology to hide the fact that most of this stuff doesn't work at all, right? Um, So that aside, right? So there was a lot of marketing. There was a lot of hype and a lot of people bought it. There were whole departments sort of tasked with writing these claims. There were whole access journalist wings that were just like pumping these through the bloodline of our public narrative. But behind the scenes, that's, that's where I was. Something, what I would say, something much more material was happening, And if you looked closely as like those of us who had the strange, lucky chance to be close up to this, what you would see is that what they were calling artificial intelligence was actually not very new. These were old techniques from the the 70s, 80s and 90s. And they've been around for a while. And it was sort of like the B list of computer science at that time. They weren't particularly useful, at least like useful from a commercial commodifiable perspective, right? They weren't going to make you money. However, this kind of AI, which, you know, we're, we're talking about machine learning here, this sort of aggregation of techniques, but, it, you know, AI is the marketing term. It relied on training models using huge amounts of data that required massive amounts of computational infrastructure. 
So there was a recognition like, oh, these sort of tinker toy models from the past that were sort of proof of concept but could never actually be commercialized because we didn't have these infrastructures can now be commercialized because we have all of this data and we have all of this infrastructure. And there was a recognition by these companies that already had kind of monopoly control over these things. They had that data, they had that infrastructure, and they had the money to pay the handful of dudes with the training to build these models. Because at that point, there weren't that many people who you know, had that training. It wasn't profitable again. And that they could begin to build these AI models and train them on data sets from education, train them from health-related data sets, train them on the Gmail corpus, et cetera, et cetera. And this would justify big tech's incursion into a manifold number of new markets. So what you're seeing here is a recognition that that term AI is sort of a magical talisman that would open a ton of different market doors and would allow them to claim things like they're going to fix education, they're going to fix transportation, et cetera. There are reasons why there are only like five firms in the US that have this infrastructure and why every other infrastructure, you know, even AI startup is sort of built on top of them. But this was a powerful narrative and sort of a powerful turn in terms of expanding these systems of control well beyond the core products that these companies were until then focused on. This is really fascinating. And I want to just spend another minute on it before we go into all the other areas, because you you said a few really salient things. One, that the purpose of these companies is, of course, profit and commercialization, and that means advertising. But on the other hand, they put forward, you just said, artificial intelligence is a sort of better way to go about that. And we've just seen sort of political ways that this is being used in California and other places. They're trying to get rid of cash bail and instead use Mm -hmm. algorithms using, I'm presuming, a lot of the same facial recognition and other things that artificial intelligence is supposed to enable. And people are highly critical of how well this works and the sort of deleterious outcomes that it mm-hmm. could foster. So could you just say something about that? And then we'll move into how the right has managed to capture a lot of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's actually sort of the the strain that my research focuses on and what I was doing at Google before I realized that organizing was maybe more effective than critique alone was, you know, I I was looking at these systems and certainly they are being, we are seeing them integrated into the criminal justice realm to determine whether someone gets bail or stays in a cage. We're seeing facial recognition being used for all manner of applications. You know, the latest was that there's a company that the journalist Dave Gershkorn reported on that is licensing a service to government's unemployment offices to validate unemployment claims based on ID photos. And it's already gotten it wrong. And it gets it wrong in predictably racist, misogynist, ableist ways. Because, of course, the data that these systems are trained on is collected from our past and present and sort of reflects the views of reality that generally white male computer science people have. So it's you're seeing kind of these systems not only exacerbate systems of social control because they're putting this control of determining who is what in the hands of vanishingly small number of tech companies and executives, bosses, those with institutional power, but they're also doing it in a way that sort of naturalizes categories of racial difference and inequality, gender difference and inequality. In all cases where we see these quote-unquote biases, we see them being biased along the lines of historical discrimination. And so what you're seeing also is that these systems are sort of concretizing, reinforcing, and normalizing 
assumptions about racial difference and justifying inequality based on these assumptions. So that, you know, there's a lot packed in here because, you know, these systems hoover up the detritus of our past and present and then claim to be making scientifically sound determinations based on this. And there's a phenomenon called automation bias, which is the phenomenon by which someone is more likely to trust the results or the determinations made by a computational system than they are if they're made by a human sitting next to them. And so we're also seeing, you know, there's sort of a reinforcement of that narrative of artificial intelligence being super, super, super smart and computation being kind of off limits, really complicated, the the realm of experts and the sort of the way in which I think we've been taught to trust these systems and to assume that because it's computational, it is somehow equivalent with intelligence. And also somehow neutral. Oh, yeah. 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 But let's go because we don't have oodles and oodles of time that Meredith uh, Whitaker. I want to talk a little bit because you started out by talking about how Silicon Valley and the development of the big tech companies was associated with the Democratic Party. But now we're seeing its open association of the far right with social media and the role of platforms in furthering the far right. And this has been abetted, of course, especially by Facebook, but also Twitter and YouTube. And especially, you know, since Trump, the tweeter in chief, you know, came onto the scene, we've seen the way that that has magnified. And then, of course, on January 6th, we saw the storming of the capital and tech platforms have sort of been, what should we call it, in the hot seat for furthering the ideas of the far right, even though they say it's just the algorithms. (laughs) But in any case, I'd like you to sort of flesh it out and explain how that has happened and how central these tech companies are to the growth of the far right and QAnon and other conspiracies. And maybe the kind of nuance that I'm hoping you'll bring into this, that it isn't just pure algorithms, but there's some agency of the people involved, too. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a great framing. I think the first thing out the bat we have to recognize is that the far right is very well funded and very well organized. And YouTube, Facebook and other tech media companies have kind of created, intentionally or no, a platform for the far right, for sort of a fascist celebrity that provided a workaround to traditional, more mainstream journalism and provided a way to reach populations that weren't necessarily reachable with these incendiary messages before. And I want to say that in this, I'm drawing heavily on the work of scholars Joan Donovan and Becca Lewis, who, among others, study misinformation and radicalization online, and I think provide some of the most kind of measured and holistic accounts of what's going on here. And right off the bat, both point out that disinformation can be a very lucrative business, especially if you're good at it. So these sort of celebrity influencers, sort of far right stars are making a lot of money if they're good about it. And the right is very good at it. And they're also good at gaming the systems that are built with monetary incentives in mind. All of this is a business, right? And they're good at gaming this business. And I think it's important to point out also, as Lewis does really well, that in the context of YouTube in particular, the algorithm is only one part of the picture, right? You know, it's certainly driving views. It's certainly doing work here. But to sort of blame it on the algorithm is a type of techno-determinism that I think gets us away from the intentionality and this sort of full picture of the political tug of war that's going on here. And I should just just interrupt, you know, that's sort of where the social dilemma takes it or, you know, and so I'm really glad that you just said that, but go ahead, I interrupted you. Well, I think blaming it on the algorithm is also in certain ways, in many ways, 
kind of reinforcing this mythology that tech is omnipotent and powerful and works as intended, that, you know, there aren't human actors and people who are benefiting from these systems, that there isn't sort of agency. And I think, again, Lewis points out in an essay that she wrote in 2020, and I'm quoting here from the essay, Mark Bergen's troubling Bloomberg expose of YouTube's corporate culture in this expose, he spoke to an employee who had determined that an alt-right vertical on the platform received viewership that rivaled the music, sports, and gaming verticals. So again, this is a core profit center. This is not a bug or an accident or sort of like some murky dark web that you know exists in the dematerialized id of the human consciousness or, or what have you. So, you know, with that background, Nantina and I were pointing to the fact that the debate over 230, this sort of political antics over yeah. 230, which is a provision in the Communications Decency Act that indemnifies companies against responsibility for content hosted on their platforms. Again, you can see the neutrality argument popping its head up here. The debate over 230, which has you know, taken center stage in the last couple of years, has been part of a much larger far right strategy focused on gaining control over big tech. And I want to be clear that the debate is not the far right's provenance, right? There's a lot of folks across the spectrum who recognize that there is a need for reform to 230 and a lot of people thinking in really nuanced ways about this. I would point to you know, Sarah T. Roberts, Jillian York, among others who, who've done a lot of work here. Can you just, can I just ask you to explain it a little better? Because Trump said, you know, you got to get rid of 230. And a lot of people have no idea what 230 is. So, you know, and I wanted to go into like the symbiosis here between the far right and the tech companies, but this is central, right? Section 230, and it's not immediately understandable, I think. So can you just explain it a little bit more? So Section 230 is a provision in the Communications Decency Act that protects tech companies from being liable for content that is hosted on them. So if I post some horrible, terrible video on Facebook of someone being killed or, or someone being harmed or, you know, you know, something illegal, you couldn't sue Facebook for hosting it. That is the gist of it. And again, okay. I would point to work by people like Sarah T. Roberts and Daniel Citron and others who've done a lot of work kind of unpacking this because, again, there's no simple one-stop shop to understand it. But that's, you know, it is corporate liability protections. But um, that's right. And so it, it actually lets Facebook and Google and the others off the hook that they can just back say, well, we're not responsible. Yeah. Yeah. Effectively. Right. And if they were responsible, there are questions about whether platforms of the scale where, you know, a human being can't be an editor of everything could sort of function in the way they do. It's sort of been built with the premise of not being responsible baked into these infrastructures. But be that as it may, the sort of debate over this took on kind of a theatrical quality, particularly for the far right. So you had politicians like Hawley, like Tom Cotton, like Jim Jordan, who, you know, recognized that the propaganda arm of the far right, which they are very dependent on, was sort of running off these platforms. And I think they kind of use this as a threat. So I think it's no accident that Congressman Jim Jordan used all of his time during July 2020's tech antitrust hearings to rail against these tech companies for their so-called anti-conservative bias. And let's be clear, there's no evidence there's anti-conservative bias. (laughs) If anything else, there's evidence that there is a sort of unwillingness to touch conservative accounts. Say not conser- we're not talking about conservatives, we're talking about you know, far rights, fascists, uh, Nazis, et cetera. But be that as it may, they spun this narrative through their propaganda arms and others and used it as a threat you know, during the antitrust hearing. So they're saying, how dare you deplatform these big accounts? How dare you touch them even if they violate your terms of service? And the threat here was basically that if these companies do enforce their kind of meager terms of service and respond to 
the growing and very serious calls to limit the reach of this harmful disinformation, to limit the reach of hate speech and harassment, that they would attack the companies in return and invoke antitrust, right? And antitrust was the weapon they were wielding in this. So it's, you know, we are sort of analyzing the way in which this discourse played out as part of a far right jockeying for control over these infrastructures. And I think, again, as we just talked about a moment ago, these infrastructures run well beyond simply these sort of media company platforms, right? These same companies have infrastructures of social control that are less visible and less obviously in contestation, but that all of this is part of that project. Well, this is really fascinating because one of the things I was going to ask you is whether or not antitrust would be one way to kind of bust the power of these companies. But let's move to that area. First, the way that there's a symbiosis between, let's say it at this point, the far right politics and the tech companies, but also the ways to take on tech and what should be done about it, because you you do concentrate a lot of that, not only in your work in organizing, but also in what you're writing. So you talk about two different areas of contestation in your work, which is one, the workplace, and the other is the community affected by big tech. And so what are some of the ways that you think tech can be taken on? You just talked about perhaps antitrust, and I could just hear break up the banks, break up tech, but that doesn't hit the infrastructure and the sort of model, the business model, right? So should we nationalize it, socialize it, what? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think in the piece, we're also arguing that there's no one weird trick. We're arguing for kind of a progressive block that recognizes the need to take control and not simply to reform a business model that has shown itself to be so vulnerable to these onslaughts. And I do think antitrust has a huge role to play here. And I would look to the work of Zephyr Teachout, Sanjeev Paul, Marshall Steinbaum, and others for visions that are looking to antitrust creatively, not only to break up big tech, but to do so in a way that is redistributing power to communities and workers. And I think we should also keep an eye on the you know, newly reconstituting FTC for what they do in this direction. But a lot of the issues with a number of mainstream tech antitrust proposals is they're effectively kind of carving up a starfish. So they're you know, making little mini Facebooks But the operational logic of Facebook is still to scale these things to as many people as possible. It's not getting to the sort of core issues of control and centralization and the infrastructural dependencies on which these types of platforms rely. So, you know, those are really things we want to look at. And we look to the growing worker movements and we look particularly to the sort of militant strain of these movements. And I I would say worker and community movements that aren't looking for reform. They are looking to take control. And I think there is, you know, the growing gig worker and app-based worker movements where you have you know, Uber drivers, Instacart workers, all of these people who are now being controlled and sort of dominated, exploited in ways that were unimaginable in the 70s and 80s when we had rapid incursion of tech and manufacturing, but are now being directed by an unintelligible algorithm that is setting their wages, which they don't know beforehand, that is telling them where they go or not, that is determining whether they even get a job or not, whether they can click on a job or they're, they're not getting that call, that is directing everything they do with almost no recourse. And these algorithms, again, are kind of calibrated by whatever the, the company, Uber, Lyft, Postmates, whoever it may be, to you know, extract as much work and profit as possible. And this has come with another onslaught that I would suggest listening to the episode with Vina Duval on Prop 22. There's been sort of a legislative attack on workers' rights and freedoms that has been justified based on some pretty fallacious 
tech rhetoric around, you know, we're flexible workers, we're entrepreneurs, et cetera, when what's really happening is a kind of, you know, return to piecework, which Vina and others have written about, and extraordinarily precarious and unprotected labor conditions that the labor movement fought really hard to get over. So, you know, we're, that's just one instance where we've seen these sort of flashpoints of workers demanding more than higher wages. They're saying like, no, 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 no. We want to see inside the algorithm. We want to control what the algorithm does. We want all that data. We want to understand, you know, why are you sending me on this long route after I don't show up? Or, you know, why am I being penalized for this? Like, we want control over that. And that's, that's echoing elite tech workers' demands for control as well. But what about, I mean, because you're hitting on a lot of areas. One is the way that workers can organize and take control. Others are saying, you know, and you mentioned up until 1996 that, you know, the Internet was public. And a lot of people are saying it should be a public utility. Facebook should be a public utility and regulated sort of the way that telephone companies used to be regulated. And I'm just wondering, you know, in this conversation about is this technology reformable, if that is something that would say prevent Facebook from recommending groups when somebody hits a like on one thing and it directs them to others in the Wall Street Journal quoted Facebook, I think, when they did this internal study and said that, you know, something like 64% of the people who hit like on one thing were then encouraged to go look at QAnon's pages. And so they helped push the radicalization of the right. Now, that's a different issue of, say, like Uber and Lyft workers and how they're gamified to Mm -hmm. continually drive and drive and drive. But one question that comes out of that, not just the reform, but deplatforming. And what does that mean? Well, I think when we're talking about regulating these, what would Facebook but run like PG&E look like? We can't ignore, you know, that PG&E has, or Pacific Gas and Electric, like a, you know, a power company or a public utility that in the neoliberal late capitalist you know, moment, let's hope it's a moment we're in, <laughs> that these public utilities aren't always serving the public either. Right. And you can look at the crumbling infrastructures in California that are now led to criminal charges against PG&E. Right. Like we can look at the just the way in which austerity and privatization has just stripped these public goods of their publicness. So I think, you know, there is certainly having something function as a public utility would be better than having it be, you know, driven by the interests of Zuckerberg and, you know, the board of Facebook or, or what have you. But, you know, I think we need to be bolder and have bigger political visions than that. I don't know that we want Facebook. And I think when we talk about the public, we also need to unflatten that, right? Who are we talking about? Whose interest is it going to serve? Because we have, we we live under racial capitalism, right? And there are people who are consistently the losers of these systems and people who seem to consistently make it out on top that, you know, divided by predictable racial gendered, you know, lines of ability, et cetera. So I think we need a more nuanced vision and we need to really think, you know, do we want Facebook and what would we want in its place, right? What are systems of care and justice that we can make transformative demands to sort of build, right? The the demand here for control that then Tina and I were pointing to is not simply one that we want to take the steering wheel of the battleship and that we will then be the people who are in control of these infrastructures, right? It was a, a demand to be able to both build transform and dismantle these infrastructures calibrated to different objectives. So instead of profit, instead of social control, instead of the goals of the authoritarian right, what does it look like when we demand goals of justice, of equity, of care, and we build things that serve those ends, or we dismantle things that don't? 
I just want to thank you for all of that. In a way, I think what you're saying is it is irreformable as it now stands. And that, you know, really the job is to put tech as well as industry at the service of the community instead of the reverse, the community at the service of their profit. And I'm really glad that you pointed out and that you're continuing to do your work. We've kind of run out of time, but I want to thank you so much, Meredith Whitaker, because you've really shown a light on how these things marry together, not just the development of, you know, which has to be a so- considered a social advance, all these technological infrastructures, but the way they've been put at the service of profit and end up not being a public good and end up with things like we've been recently seeing. So I want to thank you for joining us today, Meredith Whitaker. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. And Meredith (laughs) is now at NYU, but spent a decade at Google where she was organizing, but also founded their open research group. And she's now studying artificial intelligence and go look for all the things that she writes because they're illuminating. You can also hear her on interviews elsewhere. But I just want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very, very pleased to have Ilya Budratskis with us for the first time. He's a Moscow-based historian, political writer, cultural worker, I guess, and he's a co-host of the podcast called Political Diary, which you can find online and listen to if you know Russian. And we're speaking to Ilya in Moscow today. And we're talking about the recent protest movement. Russia has been rocked by these massive protests over the last few weeks. And these are the first large protests since the ones that took place in 2011 and 12 that were put down by Putin. The protests are a mass response to the arrest of Alexei Navalny, who returned to Russia on January 17th after narrowly surviving being poisoned from exposure to military-grade on August 20th, coincidentally, the anniversary of Trotsky's assassination. He was arrested ostensibly for violating his previous parole conditions. He was said that he violated the parole conditions because he couldn't show up to regularly scheduled appointments because he was in a medically induced coma in Berlin. Returning was certainly gutsy. He was sure to be arrested, but it was also a political gamble. So for the most part, the coverage of these protests is centered on the figure of Navalny himself. And some, especially on the left in Russia, have struggled to justify participating in the protests because of Navalny's politics that have shifted from left liberal in the 2000s when he was a member of Yabloka to openly nationalist and anti-immigrant statements that he has been making in the mid-2000s to his now current emphasis on opposing the corruption that defines Putin and his regime, a focus that strongly resonates with the public that is exhausted by growing inequality and poverty. So our guest, Ilya Budretskis, as I said, a historian, political writer, and podcaster, stands with the protesters. And we're going to get his views of the movement itself, as well as how he sees Navalny, how he characterizes the Putin regime and his rule, and what prospects there are for oppositional politics in Russia today. So many commentators, as I've said and just mentioned, 
on the left refer to Navalny's Russian nationalist and anti-immigrant statements from the mid-2000s and then cite them to characterize and criticize the movement as a whole or to justify staying outside. But as you point out, Ilya, Navalny has added the issues of inequality and poverty to his consistent anti-corruption politics, and it resonates. And I think the real issue is not that Navalny flirts with various positions, but that he's galvanized the protest, which isn't about him, but about Putin and his rule. And that's where I want to focus this interview. So just to begin, and thank you for joining us today, can you describe the current protest movement, its significance, including the left's reaction? And then within that, maybe talk about how it's different from what we saw in 2011 and 12, because you've said that these massive rallies have spread across the length and breadth of Russia, and they represent a new quality of protest. And we also know that thousands have been arrested, I think 5,000 on Sunday alone, but yet the protests continue. So how do you see these protests? Thank you very much, Susie, for the invitation. And uh, I think you're absolutely right when you claim that there is not uh, identity in between the figure of Navalny and the whole protest movement that we have for the moment, because uh, this movement exactly is much broader than uh, just support for Navalny's political line. So what is the significant and different from the previous protests in this movement? That uh, firstly, this uh, movement is not just very massive, but is also very distributed across the country. So for the first time, we see the rallies with uh, thousands of participants in many provincial cities. So on uh, 23rd of January, for example, there were more than 100 cities of Russia, including all the industrial centers like uh, Yekaterinburg, Irkutsk, and many others where people came out of the street. And that is very different from um, the protests of 2011, where the protests uh, were mostly focused in uh, Moscow and uh, St. Petersburg. It's interesting and as pointed by a number of sociologists who tried to make some polls during this protest that most of the people who came to the streets, even in Moscow, came for the first time. So it was the first political mm. experience for them. The other important moment in this protest is a huge politicization of young people. So we see uh, people like 16, 17, uh, 20 years old who are massively involved in this protest. And it also means they've never known anything other than Putin as their leader, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a generation that's uh, grown up under the Putin's rule. And then also I just mentioned that they're going to these protests and they're facing repression and they're being arrested in, you know, massively, but that isn't stopping them. And there's, of course, similarity with protests around the rest of the globe with that. It's almost as if they have no fear. Yes. So uh, it's important to say that the repressions that we faced for the moment in Russia are unprecedented, even in comparison with the previous repressive reactions uh, from the Putin's regime. So for now, you have thousands of people who were detained after these protests. Also, there are um, hundreds of criminal cases 
that already started across the Russia, not just in Moscow and St. Petersburg. All the main associates of Navalny, they're now detained in uh, terminal prisons or uh, under the domestic arrest, which means that they have no opportunity to use internet, uh, telephone, and so on. So the reaction of the police, the reaction of authorities was extremely hard, uh, extremely tough. So, for example, on the protest of 31st of January, the whole the center of Moscow was blocked by the police. More than 10 stations of the Moscow underground were closed for all because of the protest. So the situation was a little bit like atmosphere of the, some military coup d'etat, or uh, maybe you can compare it with some... Uh, atmosphere of the anti-globalist protests uh, in the early 2000s, Seattle or uh, Genoa. I want to go back to that, to go into some of the conditions that gave rise to the protest. But just one other thing on Navalny, now that he's been sentenced to, I think, 2.8, almost three years in prison, do we see a public reaction to that yet? And do you see that as a win for Putin that he's able to get Navalny out of the picture? Or is it, as you know, many polls have shown that people who are out in the protests are really there more about Putin than, than Navalny, so it may not change anything? So, of course, Navalny became a important or even central figure for this uh, protest especially after his return to Russia from Berlin, which was for sure quite brave personal act because he probably knew for sure that he was arrested and uh, imprisoned. The situation that uh, started after his return, even his recognizability among the Russians. So uh, the movie uh, documentary about the Putin's uh, palace that he produced got more than uh, 100 million views. So it seems that every adult person in uh, Russia watched this movie. And also what was interesting, it was a radical change in the propaganda line of Russian TV, for example, in the last two weeks, because before the strategy was not to mention the name of Navalny. The strategy was to picture all the opposition as some uh, unpopular, marginal, not important, and so on. But in the last two weeks, Navalny was in the center of the TV program, so everyone discussed him. Putin personally commented the movie, and denied that this palace belonged to him and his relatives and so on. So for now, they even don't try to say that they don't know Navalny or he is not important. So for everyone, it's clear that the choice in between the Putin is Navalny and Navalny is a kind of the main political choice, even if we have no elections where Navalny could be really presented. So you you asked if uh, it was the victory for Putin. I think that this uh, decision from uh, Putin expressed his uh, weakness and his fear. So maybe his mm-hmm. uh, fear is uh, even a bit overestimated. But of course, Navalny, after his arrest, became a main political prisoner in Russia. And all the further events in Russia will be more or less focused on the question of his freedom. 
Well, I want to now go into what the movement is about so that we can understand it better. Maybe you, if you could characterize Putin and his rule. And that's, you know, of course, what's behind this uh, and what has provoked the protest movement. You've talked already about the repression. But some analysts are saying that Putin is a kind of Pinochet-type authoritarian. Others have said him as uh, he's leading a mafia state. But I think the economic context is what I really want you to go into. He's managed to be in power for most of this century, which is pretty extraordinary, except for a short term as prime minister when he switched with Medvedev and then came back as president and is now you know, trying to increase the length of his rule. And he's also, in terms of world leaders, he's been wildly popular. He's had the best popularity ratings, whether you believe them or not, uh, than almost anywhere else. But that was in the earlier years. And, you know, I think it means that he was seen as the anti-Yeltsin, the one who stopped the devastating economic freefall of the immediate post-Soviet period and began once again paying wages and, and everything else and stabilizing the situation. But so long as Russia could live on oil and gas revenues and living standards could improve, then he was popular. But there's now been six straight years of real income stagnation. And then another, I've just read, 10% drop in income since the pandemic started due to the pandemic, of course. And so Given that you've also described the exposure now of his opulent palace and lifestyle while the general population is losing ground, and plus that watching on TV police bludgeoning peaceful protesters from the last two weeks of demonstrators. So how do you see these economic conditions as fueling the protest as much as Navalny's arrest? And I'll just let you go with that. Yeah, I agree with most that you said. And the popularity of Putin now is declining slightly in Russia. For example, according to the recent polls, about even half of the population still trust him as a president. And I think that the future of his regime will continue with the same dynamics. The dynamics which, in fact, destroying the so-called Putin's majority. So I think that we will see the disappearing of the so-called Putin's majority, like some 80% of uh, population who believed in stability, who still uh, dominated with fear of return to criminal 90s, and so on. So all this mythology about Putin's majority is disappearing. And the protest movement that we see for the moment is a clear mark of this process. Of course, Putin tried to present him internationally as a kind of alternative to the American domination, to the global, uh, even a global capitalism. For example, in his last speech on Davos forum, he pointed out that there is a great inequality in the in the world, in the globe, and there is not fair uh, redistribution of wealth in between the countries. And uh, of course, even uh, in Russia, <laughs> it's quite strange to hear such talks uh, against inequality from Putin, who built the regime of the extreme inequality and extreme social differentiation in his own country. So. I will say that, yes, we have a kind of maybe mafia 
state in terms that there is a certain group of people around Putin who took control on political and economic power in the country. But at the same time, it's important to stress that we also have a very hardcore variant of Russian neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. which lead to the degradation of the social sphere, which lead to the privatization in the healthcare, in the education. And uh, all it became very clear exactly uh, during the pandemic. So I think the reaction to the pandemic from the government was very important in terms that inspire this protest that we have uh, for now, because the help from the government to the people was very limited and uh, even uncomparable with the support given to the ordinary citizens by the most of European states. It's pretty interesting because you've described that Putin's sentencing of Navalny shows his weakness in one sense. And I think I agree with you. And I I just wanted to see what you think of this, because you described the kind of mafia state, but also the authoritarian moves of this government. And what makes it kind of weak is that there's still elections. So it's not a full-on dictatorship at this point. And so he has to be, even if the elections are rigged, and we know that many of them are, that he still has to respond somewhat to popular opinion. And mostly that popular opinion has not expressed itself the way that it is now. And this comes, as you've said, and I said, in the context of stagnant wages and a dropping standard of living. So as we said before, so long as the standard of living could go up, people could, I guess, overlook that. But now that's not the case. So, well, I want to hear what you think about these conditions that have changed slightly the character of Putin's rules. And you wrote in Left East that his regime is entering in a new phase, virtually an open dictatorship based not on passive support from below, but repression against any opposition. So I'm really asking you two questions. One is to sort of characterize this kind of dilemma for Putin and the economic conditions underlying this new phase, but also whether or not you see more open, tougher, and more repression to come. Yeah. Uh, So you're quite right when you mentioned that uh, there was some kind of managed democracy, let's say, most of the existence of the Putin regime. In terms, there were regular elections, there were a number of parties that were allowed to participate in these elections. But this situation started to change uh, more rapidly after the amendments to the Russian constitution that became clear after the so-called old people's voting for the amendments to the constitution, which gave for Putin an opportunity to be the leader of Russia to the end of his life, basically. And also what was interesting, the way how this vote was organized. So it was organized in a new way. So the vote was prolonged for three days. All the independent observers in the elections were kicked off uh, from the electoral points. People can vote in some strange uh, places, on the streets or uh, on their workplaces. So basically, this vote was absolutely out of any control. And it seems that the elections that will be in September of this year, the parliamentary elections in Russia, which are very important in terms that 
they will open the electoral cycle that will then continue with the presidential elections of 2024, probably the elections will reproduce the same new standard. And this uh, new standard, according to the Kremlin scenario, have to lead to the total domination of the United Russia, so the Putin's party in the parliament. So uh, for the moment, uh, the um, uh, left of popularity of United Russia is a little bit less than 30%. Yeah. But the scenario is that United Russia need to gain some 70, even more percent of the votes to have a constitutional majority in the new parliament. And of course, that is a big challenge for those, even the parties of the system opposition, especially the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which are losing their votes and which uh, have no instrument to defend their votes. In this uh, situation, Navalny became like an organic ally of the Communist Party, especially because of his call for so-called smart vote. So he, yeah. Can you uh, explain he, uh, that? Explain the smart vote because I know this is yeah, very important. Uh, and so, uh, it, it's very important, and uh, I think that's the main political threat for Putin's regime for the moment. That's the idea that the people who are in opposition have to vote to any candidate who have the best chance to beat the United Russia in uh, his area. So this candidate could be independent, communist, or whatever, but all the people who are influenced by Navalny, all the people who are participating in the protest movement, despite of their political views, they have to vote for this candidate. And of course, as the most of cases, in reality, these candidates are communists. So, uh, for example, in 2019, there were elections in the Moscow city parliament where the Communist Party gained 13 places out of 45, which was the best result in Moscow ever for the Communist Party. And that was only because of the smart vote system. So it was a Navalny who can say bring the political subjectivity for the Communist Party. And of course, it uh, led to some changes and some moves in the Communist Party itself. For example, uh, for now, even when the leader of the Communist Party, Gennady Zyuganov, condemned Navalny as a foreign agent, traitor of the country and so on, there were a lot of statements of support of the protest movement from the Communist Party members, uh, including the members of the Moscow city parliament and the city parliaments in the different areas of, of Russia. And probably, as you know, the representative of Navalny's uh, campaign just yesterday said that we will uh, not organize the protests in some coming month. And now our main task is to prepare for the parliamentary elections. So the main focus of the protest movement will be on the electoral campaign and on the smart vote strategy. And I should just let the listeners know that, you know, you have a single member districts and that you also have first past the post. Right. So the smart voting, just just to understand it, you're really and there are not that many political parties that can contest the elections. So. Really what you're explaining, I I guess I'm getting this, is that people are being told to vote for anybody other than Putin, that your vote doesn't represent support for, but a vote against Putin and the United Russia Party. And if enough people do that, then his coalition, that his party 
will have a lot fewer seats. Is that right? Right. Right. Okay. So this takes it back. I was going to go back then to the character of Navalny because we sort of skipped over that to understand the nature of the movement and of the political economic situation and Putin's rule. But in the context of the failed assassination attempt of his life last August and then now the subsequent arrest, and I think uh, his prison sentence fits well with your analysis that stresses Putin's increasing repressive rule, but also the weakness of this return to repression. So it, it makes me think of a lot of questions. One is how do you assess? You said that Navalny was a brave man. I said he was gutsy to come back because he knew he would be arrested. So what do you think his political calculation was and how do you see his role in particular within the protest movement? I mean, we've seen that he's the kind of titular leader, but how is he viewed by most of the mass of the protesters? Is he the catalyst, but they're really about Putin and his rule, the system, but not Navalny per se? And in that sense, maybe you could talk if it's clear yet, if the movement is in Kuwait or it has some goals that we can understand. Mm -hmm. So first few words about Navalny himself. Uh, So uh, my uh, main definition of him uh, will be a populist. So the populist who take the ideas in the very instrumental way. If the ideas are helping to build any coalition and to broaden this coalition, they are good. If they are working as tool of the confrontation, they are bad. So in this sense, I think that his like original views are liberal. So he is uh, like, let's say, some supporter of some liberal democracy, market capitalism, but he tried to use some turns. Uh, so, for example, turn to some kind of moderate uh, Russian nationalism to broaden the traditional base of liberals in uh, Russia. So it was in the 2000s. And then in 2010s, he moved to some kind of social or even a little bit lefty political language, talking about inequality, poverty, enormous luxury of the elite, and so on. So in in this sense, I don't think that he have any consistent principle, uh, political views, political ideas. So for the movement, Navalny mostly became a symbol of the resistance. And uh, I think that most of the people even don't know too much about his uh, political uh, career and political story from uh, last 20 years, including uh, this moment when he tried to collaborate with Russian nationalists. Okay, well, we've almost run out of time, but I want to ask you just one final question. And first, thank you so much, Ilya Budraitskis, because this has been incredibly informative. But now we just heard, I guess it's yesterday, that there's a new Russian vaccine for COVID-19, and it's called Sputnik V. And it's being rolled out at a time that there's not enough vaccines around the world. And Putin has said that this one will be cheaper and there will be more of them and it will help the entire world because none of us are safe until everyone is safe. And I just wondered, will the success of the vaccine and the sort of impetus to Russian nationalism, Russia's great and it can do this, affect the protest movement in any way? You know, and how do you see it? 
I think that Putin tried to use the Sputnik as a kind of his personal game, but it's not working in, the, in this way. So, of course, most of the Russian people, they're happy with this vaccine. If they have the opportunity to have a shot, because it's very different. So, for example, in uh, Moscow, you can do it without problems, but in some provincial cities, there's a huge queue to get this vaccine. But I think that the most of Russian, they divide these two facts, uh, the Putin's rule and the success of the vaccine. Fascinating. Well, Ilya Budraitskis, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Jacobin Radio. And I hope you come back because this has been fascinating. I'm speaking to him in Moscow. He's a political writer and co-host of the Political Diary podcast. And he's also a historian. I'm Susie Wiseman. Thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.